You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. So this is our third study on Shall We Baptize Children. It does look like they're going to be five, I think. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, uh, I want, I, I think in this third lesson, there's some review of what we've already said in this study uh, and uh, is, is good and necessary. So let me uh, go through that quickly, I hope. I said that this issue will be best treated in three parts. We're going to look at part one, initial reflections. Part two, scriptural foundations, and then part three, practical conclusions. I hope to conclude part two this morning and come to some practical conclusions next week. Our first study was entirely taken up with initial reflections. We considered the present controversy, the fact that there is a difference of opinion among Calvinistic Reformed Baptists on this issue of whether children should be baptized or not. I gave you something of my own personal history on this, both my personal experience of having been baptized when I was seven and then baptized again. I know that language is inaccurate, but when I was 26. And my wife's similar experience as well. And then I talked about my pastoral experience, both in uh, Reformed Baptist Church of Grand Rapids and Heritage Baptist Church and in this church. And then I shared with you some premise convictions, and there were five of them. The first conviction was that the answer to this question is revealed and regulated by the Word of God. The second conviction is that the Scriptures teach the baptism of disciples alone and the wrongness of infant baptism. The third conviction was that the Scriptures teach that all credibly professing believers should be baptized. The fourth conviction is the Scriptures teach that children may be converted to Christ and saved, And the fifth conviction was that baptism must be into the membership of a local church. Now, that brought us to scriptural foundations last week. And the first of those is what I call the biblical theology of minor children. And I turned to four passages of scripture, which are like a collage of biblical pictures. And together, I think they give us a scriptural theology of minor children. And I want to simply remind you of those four passages. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. And then we turned to, uh, after looking at a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, which says not to be a childish in our thinking, but to be childish with regard to evil. We turn to Ephesians 4, 13 and 14, which says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Then we looked at John 19, 18 to 23, where twice the parents of the man born blind say of him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. 
And then Acts 8, 12, which tells us that when Philip had preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, the Samaritans were being baptized, men and women alike. The language there speaks of adult men and adult women. Now, in this present study, my goal is to lay out for you three more scriptural foundations which should ground our practice with regard to the baptism of children. And so the second uh, of those four uh, scriptural foundations is this. It is a scriptural understanding of church membership. A scriptural understanding of church membership. And I have two headings under this, this section too, and the first is this. There is a very close biblical connection between baptism and membership in the local church. There is a very close connection, biblical connection, between baptism and membership in the local church. One of the major problems, and it is a significant problem, which with much of the practice involving baptizing children, as it is practiced far and wide, among Baptists in our country, is that it ignores the connection between baptism and church membership. Now, your pastors are united in their belief that baptism and church membership ought not to be disconnected, and that church membership ought to be a consequence of baptism. There is a close connection between baptism and membership in the local church, and this morning I want to quickly, I hope I can do it quickly, uh, give you 10 reasons for that. And the first reason is this. This is what the meaning or symbolism of baptism requires. Baptism, according to the New Testament, symbolizes and makes visible the inward and spiritual reality of union with Christ. This is Romans 6. You were baptized into Christ. But union with Christ... Of course, immediately, necessarily, involves union with his body. Would you agree? How can you be united with Christ and not united with his body? But what is the local expression of the body of Christ? Well, the only appointed local expression of the body of Christ is the local church. So if baptism is baptism into Christ, it is baptism into his body, And therefore, it is baptism into his church, and the local expression of that church is, well, the local church, the particular society which expresses that great reality in uh, one place. So this is what the meaning or baptism of symbolism or symbolism of baptism requires. Now, this is also what the Great Commission requires. Now, I I suspect you're all pretty familiar with the Great Commission, so let me just explain what I mean by this argument. Baptists insist, rightly, that the order of the Great Commission requires that baptism be preceded by discipleship. Agreed? Make disciples, baptize them. But the Great Commission does not stop there, does it? The Great Commission goes on to say, teach them to observe all that Christ I have commanded. Now, here's the point. The Great Commission 
just as clearly requires that baptism be succeeded by instruction as it requires that baptism be preceded by discipleship. Right? And what is the appointed structure or school in which that teaching takes place? Well, will you read the book of Acts? It's really clear. The disciples were formed into local churches with pastor teachers that led those churches to continue that discipling process, to continue the teaching process. Those baptized then must be required to enroll in Christ's school, that is, the local church. But three, a third argument. This is what baptism's identity as a church ordinance requires. Baptist rightly insists that only the church and its authorized representatives have a right to baptize. Why? Because its baptism is an ordinance of the local church. Those originally charged to baptize were not all Christians promiscuously or individually, but the apostles of Christ in their official capacity as those upon whose testimony the visible church was to be built. What does that mean? Well, it means that baptism is is an ordinance of the visible church, and thus an ordinance under the authority of the church. It is inconsistent and illogical to bestow a church ordinance on those who are not, by this initiatory ordinance, made members of the church. But fourthly, and uh, very practically, Baptism confers the privilege of the Lord's table, right? Well, this is the great argument. Baptism confers the privilege of the Lord's table, a church ordinance under the discipline of the church. One of the pressing concerns of those who argue for the bestowal of baptism without undue delay on disciples is that such disciples might have the privilege of partaking of the Lord's Supper. I mean, that's one of the driving motivations for baptizing children and the arguments for it. Thus, those who argue in this fashion assume that the Lord's table requires the visible sign of baptism. They're right to assume that. The reason, however, that the visible sign of baptism is required is just because the Lord's Supper is a visible manifestation not only of our union with Christ, but of our union with his body, the church. Thus, to require baptism for partaking of the Lord's table is tacitly, that's a word that means silently or quietly, but really to admit that it is an ordinance of the visible church. The local church is, however, the only appointed local expression of the visible church. The key passage inseparably connects the Lord's table with the local church. It is the church that gathers to celebrate the Lord's Supper and the church that is despised by wrong partaking in 1 Corinthians 11. Those who are impenitent in sin should not be allowed to eat with the church, 1 Corinthians 5.11. Was such a one know not to eat? It may be, it probably is, that that's talking about ordinary meals. But if it's talking about ordinary meals, it's certainly talking about the Lord's Supper. 
Thus, the Lord's Supper is under the authority and discipline of the local church to allow that baptized non-members have a right to the Lord's table is, however, to adopt a completely different theory of the Lord's table. And this theory must be that all baptized Christians, but not necessarily yet members of the church, are allowed to partake of the Lord's table on their own authority. But this would mean that you have people partaking of the Lord's Supper that aren't under the discipline of the church. Either the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance and for church members, or the Lord's Supper is given to non-church members and not a church ordinance. These are the alternatives. If the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance, as the Bible clearly teaches, and yet presumes baptism, as I and those with whom I'm arguing assume, then it must be that baptism and church membership are inseparably connected. But five, the New Testament assumes both that all Christians are baptized and that they are church members. The New Testament assumes that all Christians are baptized and that they are church members. That is to say, in the New Testament, you cannot find a class of Christians consisting of baptized non-church members. They aren't there, folks. There's no such person in the New Testament. It's a simple and obvious fact that in passages like Romans 6, 1 to 4, Paul assumes that all the Christians at Rome were baptized. It's just as simple and clear that passages like Matthew 18 and Hebrews 13, 17 and 1 Corinthians 1, 2 and Philippians 1, 1 assume that all Christians are church members. To disconnect baptism from church membership is to create a class of Christians who are baptized but not church members. Quite simply, the New Testament knows of no such class of Christians. In assuming that all Christians are both baptized and members of local churches, it teaches as clearly as one could wish that baptism and church membership are coincident, that they go together. It's, of course, true, true, and we know it's true, that exceptional circumstances exist. In the New Testament and today, there were those who, as to their faith, were genuine Christians who for a short period of time had not yet professed and made visible that faith by being baptized. Then as a result of sin and all the irregularities that have developed because of it, there are Christians today who have been baptized and are not at the moment members of churches. But this cannot obscure, it must not obscure, for us the normative teaching of the New Testament that a professing Christian both is and ought to be baptized and a church member. Well, those are my first five arguments, and uh, I have five more to go through. Sixthly, uh, this is what the order of Acts 2 requires. Now, I've been I've not been turning you to text of Scripture, but I do want you to turn again to Acts chapter 2, 41 and 42 now. Acts 2, 41 and 42. Some of you are wishing for text. Well, this is a text. Acts 2, verses 41 and 42. Acts 2.41, so then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The question is, added to what? The 3,000 souls that were baptized that day were added to the church. This is what the whole surrounding context requires. 
The 3,000 souls were added to the 120 original members of the church, and now there were 3,120. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, this is what the following context assumes too, doesn't it? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. So uh, what followed their baptism? It was fellowship with the local church in its worship. And so here again, we have a a clear statement that uh, baptism uh, connected one to the local church and gave the right of the Lord's table. Seventhly, it's neither safe nor principled for new Christians to be allowed to be without a church home. If you baptize people without requiring them to join the church, well then, what's the result of that? Well, you allow these new Christians, baby Christians, to be without a church home, don't you? Can a a pastor do that? Can Can a true shepherd allow that to happen? I think not, according to the teaching of the New Testament. Eighthly, in the book of Acts, we know of no separate ordinance by which baptized Christians were ch- became church members. Now, <clears throat> you may have to think about this one for a while. That's all right. But <clears throat> what appears in the book of Acts is this. Uh, the apostles went baptizing people, discipling people, and making ba- baptizing them. And then, lo and behold... Presto, how's that whole saying go? Presto Christo? Presto something? Uh, uh, Lo and behold, there were local churches. We don't read of any constituting services. We don't read of anything. The disciples were made, they were baptized, and then lo and behold, there were local churches. Why? Well, I think the reason for that is that that baptism was the way in which people were inducted into the local church. Nine, there is no proof that any believer was not baptized into the local church. Now, I know. And the question was raised the other class. The Ethiopian eunuch is often cited as an example of someone who was not baptized into a local church. But we do not know that. We don't don't know if he was baptized into the local church that he was going to start in Ethiopia. We don't know if he was baptized as an associate member into the churches that Philip was associated in his evangelism. His baptism has made the precedent sometimes for overturning everything else that the New Testament teaches about the coincidence of baptism and church membership. Uh, But there are several important objections. First, if the Ethiopian eunuch indeed was not baptized into a local church, it was only because no such church existed in Ethiopia. This was clearly an exceptional circumstance that must not be made into a normative principle of the church or applied to situations where a local church does exist. Second, it is not in fact clear that the Ethiopian eunuch was not baptized into a local church. This assumption on the part of interpreters is nowhere stated in the passage. It's possible and even probable giving the teaching of the rest of the New Testament that he was baptized into the membership of the church in Jerusalem or that he was the first member of the church in Ethiopia. One thing is for sure, this this is no instance of happy-go-lucky evangelism where believers are made and then left to fend for themselves. We cannot attribute such a practice to Philip or to the church in Jerusalem. Tenthly, 
The only alternative to saying that Christians are baptized into the visible and local church is to say that they are baptized into the invisible and universal church. Because you have to say they're baptized into the church in some way because they're baptized into the body of Christ, right? But, but the only appointed local expression, the only visible expression of the universal church of which the New Testament knows anything is the local church. In 1 Timothy 3.15, for instance, it is plainly the universal church that is described in the language, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Just as clearly, when Timothy is instructed as to how he ought to conduct himself in that church, in the ordering of its public meetings and the setting apart of its officers, I write that you might know how you ought to conduct yourself in the church, It is the local church which is in view. So it's both the universal and local church because the local church is the visible expression of the universal church. The two things go together. So to argue that you can be baptized into the universal church but not into the local church is to misconceive the relation between what we call the universal and local church. Okay. Well... Okay, I'm going to escape that first point and go to my second one. Here's my second point. There is no special church membership for children mentioned in the New Testament. There is no special church membership for children mentioned in the New Testament. So assuming that baptism must be into the membership of the church, a second observation is crucial. There is no distinction mentioned in the New Testament which allows for a different kind of membership for children as opposed to adults. To put this another way, there is no split-level church membership in the New Testament. You may search the New Testament far and wide and not find such a distinction. There are simply church members, not three to five classes of church members. There are not adult church members and children church members. And this fact is reflected in our own church's constitution, which makes no such provision for those things. There is no provision for a special and lesser church membership for children. But the conclusion that is inevitable. If we baptize children, it must be into church membership. And baptizing children into church membership confers on them all the privileges and liabilities of church membership. If children are baptized, they must be given all the privileges of church membership. They must be given the privilege of partaking of the Lord's Supper, for instance. They must be given the privilege of participating in voting in church business meetings. And this must include voting and participating in church discipline. And... Children also become liable to the liabilities of church membership, and this means the reality and possibility of church discipline. It may seem very sweet, nice, and easy to baptize that seven or eight years old, and it makes all, uh, everybody so happy. But if a church is a biblical church and practices church discipline, you understand that you're exposing that child when they're 17 or 18 to church discipline. There is no alternative. And that's something that when we have baptized uh, those who are moving from childhood to adulthood in the past, 
We've always explained to the people, to their parents, you understand that if they become, they're baptized, they become church members, and that they are subject to church discipline. If things fall apart when they're teenagers, that's what's going to happen. And we have no choice. And so you need to think about that, right? Well, and so it really is, it really is a serious question, isn't it? Is this something, this liability to church discipline, that is right or reasonable to put upon a seven-year-old child? <clears throat> but there is section three, and this is a proper doctrine of ecclesiastical authority, a proper doctrine of ecclesiastical authority. Here is my thesis under this heading. The church in general, and pastors in particular, are the gatekeepers of baptism and church membership. You may have noticed, if you've been attending here for any length of time, that we vote on all the applications for membership of all prospective members. And if they need to be baptized, that vote includes whether we should baptize them or not. This practice, dear people, is not merely traditional. It is because of what we think the Bible says. It is a biblical conviction based on the fact that membership in the church requires the consent of the church. According to the New Testament, the consent of the church is necessary to exclude someone from the church, right? Logically, then, it follows that the consent of the church is necessary if someone is to be included in the church's membership. Now, when I say that the consent of the church is necessary to exclude someone from church membership, somebody give me the passages. What's one passage that teaches that? Consent of the church necessary to excommunication. Hmm? I can say it again. Matthew 18 is the first one. What's another one? First Corinthians 5. There's a third one you might not get. That's right. All of those passages assume that church discipline takes place in a meeting of the church, of the assembly, right? So if, if it's necessary to exclude someone from the church, it at least is, is necessary to include someone in the church, right? And that's why we vote on church memberships and applications for church membership, because the two things go together, <clears throat> But I think you will agree that where a church has elders, it's the responsibility of the elders to lead the church, both in the recognition of new members and their being baptized, and also in um, the and the necessary sometimes act of church discipline. And it seems to me that this is the necessary implication of there being the church's elders, pastors, and overseers. If you look at a passage like 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 14, for instance, why don't you turn there? 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 14. <clears throat> but we request of you... Uh, Brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, 
live in peace with one another. And uh, then he goes on to say, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Another passage that speaks of the leadership of the pastors in the church is Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so it's the job of the pastors and elders of the church to give leadership to the church, and this includes leadership in bringing people into the church, and it includes leadership in putting people out of the church. So now where am I going with this? Well, only a credible profession of faith provides the the warrant for baptism and church membership. Our confession teaches clearly what is surely the biblical doctrine when it says in 26.6, the members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto that call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and uh, one to another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinance of the gospel, ordinances of the gospel. So the question is this, who decides on the credibility of such a willing profession of faith? Who decides on that? Well, the implication for our subject it is, that, is that it's not the family that decides. It's not the parents who decide who should be baptized. And it's certainly not the person requesting the baptism who makes that final decision. It is the church, led by its pastors, who make these decisions. The church and its pastors must judge the child's profession to be credible. They cannot, they may not, simply take the word of the parents for this. Of course, the word of the parents is one crucial factor, but it can't be the only or decisive factor. Because this is a church ordinance, not a family ordinance. And this is why, by the way, that I am against, in most cases, there are some exceptional circumstances, I'm against, in most cases, the more and more common and tragic practice of allowing fathers to baptize their own children. It sends an entirely wrong message about who is in charge of evaluating the credible profession of faith. It sends an entirely wrong message about what baptism is. It's not a family ordinance. It is a church ordinance. And so it is the church, finally, and with its pastors that must evaluate whether uh, anyone has a credible profession of faith when they apply for baptism and church membership. Get to my fourth point, so I'm ready to go to practical conclusions next week. Uh, Section four here is a right rejection of cultural assumptions. Now here's what I want you to do. Please, Please turn to the passage in the Bible that talks about teenagers. What? Somebody tell me what the passage is. 
Well, yeah, you're getting it all right. There is no such passage. We have in our minds, in our day, children, teens, and adults. That's the way we think, right? There is no such category in the Bible. The Bible speaks simply in terms of children and adults. Uh, and I think what we—I think one of the things that bedevils this matter, uh, in in no small way, is that uh, the Bible uh, doesn't have this third category of something between uh, adults and children. There's no passage which speaks of teenagers as an in-between category of people who are neither adults nor children. In the Bible, you're either a child who cannot speak for himself or you an adult who can. In our society, we think of children, teens, and adults, and this is really a way of thinking that's alien to the Bible. And so I want to just raise the question, could the modern invention of teenhood be the source of many of our problems with regard to the issue of baptizing children. Is this the reason for our confusion? Well, I think it's very possible, and here's why. When someone says that baptism and church membership should be deferred to adulthood, we automatically think of late teens and early 20s, don't we? Uh, 18 is when you can vote. 16 is when you can drive. Um, I don't know what happens at 21 anymore. You can drink, right? That's what happens. But in this reaction, there is the assumption that teens are not adults. But in Jewish society, so far as we can tell, uh, and this is reflected in the New Testament, adulthood became a reality around the age of 12 for girls and 13 for boys. Now, granted, because of the way our society thinks and acts and delays adulthood, it may be true that many 12- and 13-year-olds are still very much children, and I'm not denying that. But I'm only saying that our cultural assumptions may be very wrong about this issue of teenhood. That's what I'm saying. Now, I am deliberately uh, deferring specific practical conclusions until next week. But here I simply want to review the scriptural foundations we have studied and place them clearly before our minds as we consider what practical conclusions we should draw. So what are we seeing by way of scriptural foundations? We've seen a biblical theology of minor children. Children and adults are very different, and they think very differently. And they are vulnerable. There are vulnerabilities in minor children that are in contrast with adults. Section 2, a scriptural understanding of church membership tells us that there's a close connection between baptism and church membership, and 2, that there's no special church membership for children mentioned in the New Testament. Second, section 3, we looked at a proper doctrine of ecclesiastical authority. This is a matter for the church and not a matter for the family. And section 4, there's a right rejection of cultural assumptions. Let's, let's not allow assumptions that we have from our culture to influence the way we're thinking here, rather than what the Bible seems to teach about the difference between children and adults. Well, we'll come to some practical conclusions next week. Let me close in prayer. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. 
CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.